The cosmic abyss. What does that conjure up for you? Endless darkness and coldness filled with billions of stars? Or the great unknown and endless possibilities? We'll look at these ideas and many more that tie in with this birth-related Tresina after I welcome you to episode 41 of Navigating the Energies of Life a podcast that looks at how the energies of the Maya calendar are at work in the world and how they apply to daily lives. This is Marguerite Paquin, continuing with this podcast to accompany my horoscope blog that tracks the days of this calendar. Just a quick reminder that we're working here with a calendrical system that has at its core 20 solar-based energies cycling in tandem with 13 unique numerical powers to create a count of 260 days that continuously revolve. This timekeeping system was in use throughout the central region of the Americas for generations prior to the 16th century arrival of Europeans. It went by many different names, including Zulkan, meaning Count of Days in Yucatec Maya, and Tonalpoali in Nahuatl, used by the Aztec. Within this 260-day system, there are 20 tricinas, or groups of 13 days each of which encompasses a particular theme or special set of energies that flow through the time spans. Currently, we're in the Imish Tresina, which began on Saturday, October 16th. I'm going to do a quick big picture overview of some of the key events associated with recent Imish Tresinas before getting into more of the specifics related to the days. Now, if you've been following this calendar, you will be aware that as of October 15th, we completed the 260-day cycle that began on January 29th of this year just after President Joe Biden's inauguration in the U.S. So when we started the new cycle at that time, with one Imish, the first day of the cycle, which translates as the initiation of birth or the initiation of the realm of all potential, it was the birthing of a whole new presidency in the U.S., Joe Biden was armed with a large agenda and was already signing a long list of executive orders. That was roughly six weeks after the first COVID immunizations were given in the U.S. and Canada, primarily to healthcare workers and those in most need. And as President Biden had set a goal of getting 100 million people vaccinated within his first 100 days in office, 
the push was on to get those vaccines produced and distributed. At that time, things were already significantly out of control. Since the pandemic had been raging throughout the previous entire cycle, the one that ran from May 14th, 2020 through to the end of January of this year. Looking back to that time, looking at the possible trajectory as that new cycle opened up, things were not looking good at all. There were already over 4.5 million cases reported globally, with the U.S. alone close to 1.5 million. At that time, which was 520 days ago, on that very first day, one Imish, Dr. Rick Bright, a leading biomedical researcher, testified in front of the U.S. Senate concerning the lack of preparedness on the part of the White House regarding the pandemic. He warned then that without a response based in science, the pandemic would get far worse and the U.S. would face unprecedented illness and fatalities. As he put it, quote, without clear planning and implementation of the steps that he and other experts had outlined, 2020 would be the darkest winter in modern history, unquote. At that time, the U.S. already had a death toll of over 86,000 the world's highest even then, and numbers were climbing rapidly. So there was a plan that could have been implemented. When he gave that testimony, Dr. Bright had been recently ousted because he voiced dissent to the widespread use of the anti-malaria drug that the dumpster was touting with no scientific backing as a potential cure for the virus. With regard to this, an article came out in Politico where they saw this as a critical moment in time. The statement was that Bright's testimony represented a critical moment in the virus crisis. He's the first federal health official to publicly criticize, and I'll use the term pino here, president in name only, as he never really functioned as a real president for the people. So Bright was the first federal health official to publicly criticize the Pino's administration so harshly and in such detail, given Bright's prominent position in the biomedical world. Now, just think for a moment. This testimony was given on one image, the initiation of birth, or 
the initiation of the realm of all potential. It was a point where things could have changed. At that point, even China was showing that it was possible to ward off the coronavirus if, if effective steps were undertaken. That Wanimish day, two cycles ago, 520 days ago, marked one month since there were no reported deaths in China. There was precedent available and expertise that could have been followed but wasn't. And so the trajectory was set for the truly disastrous cycle that followed. By the end of the Imish Tresina, at that time, which was May of 2020, the U.S. death toll had climbed to over 100,000, and the World Health Organization was warning that the world was still only in the first phase of the pandemic. The recommendation globally was for preventative measures to be maintained, especially social isolation. But the larger scale problem was that many countries were reopening sectors of their economies after two months of closure. That was the day when, for example, the UK released its reopening plans and it was always in a rush to do so. Unfortunately, these are the kinds of decisions that have had deadly consequences. Even now, two cycles later, the UK is still in a free-for-all, quite literally now. They are the, the fourth highest in the world in terms of case numbers. They are not using masks or social distancing. And recently, they have been registering over 40,000 new cases a day. Even today, there was over 49,000 new cases registered. And these numbers have been high like this for quite some time. I read an article a couple of days ago where some Brits were traveling to places in Europe and actually feeling safer in those countries where restrictions are still in place, feeling safer than they did in their own country that basically is just so wide open. Now, fast forward one cycle from May of last year to one image this past January 29th, so January 2021, to the energies that opened this past cycle, the one that just finished. By that time, this past January, over 26 million cases had been registered in the U.S., by far the world's highest case total. 
almost two and a half times as many cases as in India. On that day, there were over 169,000 new cases registered in the U.S. and 3,652 deaths, bringing that total to over 440,000 deaths. But the difference was that finally there was an administration in place in the U.S. that was dedicated to working with the researchers and medical professionals who were available to help guide a new trajectory dedicated to recovery. And so the push was on to get on with that work. By mid-March, the 49th day of this past cycle, 100 million doses had been given in the U.S. and millions of doses were being sent elsewhere, including to Canada and Mexico. But as we got into summer, things began slowing down as misinformation campaigns and vaccine hesitancy clicked in. And much of that can be traced back to the previous administration. Indeed, on the last day of this Imish Tristina in early February of this year, the Lancet Commission on Public Policy and Health in the Pinos era released a scathing report on the repercussions of his disastrous health-related policies and the failures of his administration, noting that he was widely condemned for not taking the pandemic seriously enough, soon enough, for spreading conspiracy theories, not encouraging mask-wearing, and undermining scientists and others who were working to combat the spread of the coronavirus. The report, which was seen as being historical in its truth-telling, not only tied his actions to the conditions which made his presidency possible, but also emphasized that the country had entered the pandemic with a degraded public health infrastructure, made worse by his rollbacks. The report concluded that 40% of the deaths from COVID in the U.S. could have been averted if a more supportive health care system had been in place, and if science Based preventative measures had been taken. Fast forward to where we are now. The U.S. is now approaching 46 million cases overall and over 740,000 people in that country have died from COVID. Globally, we are approaching 242 million cases, and it looks like the global death toll 
will hit 5 million by early November. Russia is now registering over a thousand deaths a day. Brazil is still out of control, and who knows what's going on in the UK. It's the start of a new energy cycle, a new point where decisions are being made that will affect the trajectory of the next 260 days. There is good news in this regard and bad news. The bad news is that we seem to be in the midst of what Dr. Sanjay Gupta terms World War C, the battle between the vaccinated, those who are trying to put this thing behind us, and the unvaccinated, with those from that latter group dying at by far the greatest rate, not just in the U.S., but in many places. On one Imish this past Saturday, there was a news report that in many cities in the U.S., police unions and police officers were taking actions to block vaccine mandates. Similarly, there are skirmishes and protests over such things as vaccine passports and travel regulations and how schools should be managed in this regard. Even healthcare workers are being threatened and put into jeopardy. Nurses and doctors are being intimidated. Absolute insanity. So many seem to have forgotten that vaccines have helped eradicate many deadly diseases in the past, such as the polio vaccine that helped clear up that horrible affliction. What great news it was to hear that Canada was certified polio-free in 1994. But despite the insanity, there are many new initiatives underway to help get the world vaccinated. Argentina, for example, recently approved a COVID vaccine for children aged between 3 and 11. And a couple of days ago, again on one Imish, New Zealand held a Super Saturday Vaxathon and administered over 127,000 Pfizer doses, vaccinating a record 2.5% of its population on that single day. What an amazing start to the cycle. No doubt, during this new cycle, there will also be a much greater push to get vaccines distributed much more widely for global access. You might well ask what all this has to do with the generative abyss or cosmic abyss aspect that I originally mentioned which takes us back to the notion of metaphor 
that not only permeates so much of Maya art and cosmology, but also can be detected quite literally. For Imish, this relates to the idea of birthing new possibilities, embarking on new courses of action, nurturing and encouraging new directions. There's often a pioneering aspect to this as well, as in venturing out into the unknown. And because the traditional patron of this time period was often shown as a binary deity, the ultimate progenitor that could create anything, this was seen as a time frame where truly anything is possible. Many pioneering inventors and explorers seem to hear this call during this period, and that connection to the actual cosmos can be seen in the many space-related events that have taken place during this period, a few of which are noted in the Horoscope blog. In early February, when this was in place, the focus was on the Mars missions, with the UAE's Hope Orbiter arriving at Mars and safely entering orbit, followed the very next day by China's Tianwen-1 probe. This time, this Tracina began with the launch of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, the Lucy space probe, on a 12-year mission to explore eight asteroids, seven of which are in orbit around Jupiter. This was the Calendar Round Return, also known as the New Fire Anniversary, of the day in 1969 when the first host-to-host connection was made between computers. Basically, it was the birth of Internet communication. And now, upping the ante, so it seems, comes the announcement that Facebook is planning to hire 10,000 people in the European Union to develop a so-called metaverse, an online world where people can game, work, and communicate in a virtual environment, often using virtual reality headsets, as if we need more ways to escape from actual reality. This sounds a lot like the old holodeck idea that was featured in Star Trek and its spin-offs. Virtual reality rooms that were interactive simulations of physical places in the real world. So if you wanted to visit a forest, for example, for recreation, but you were on a starship, you could simulate that environment on a holodeck. But then the introduction of that sort of thing shouldn't be surprising because 
There are many who would argue that ideas for many of the things we now use and take for granted originally stemmed from Star Trek. Which reminds me, I was watching an old episode of Star Trek the other evening, having been reminded of it by William Shatner's adventure into space the other day. And the storyline for the episode was eerily reflective of something we've seen firsthand over the past few years. It was a story about how an alien entity in the form of a kind of mobile energy field that most people couldn't even see, had infiltrated the starship. It would go around looking for people that it could influence energetically to bring out negative emotions that would stir up conflict. It's got its strength by fomenting violence and feeding off it. When violence broke out, it pumped up and became energized, turning a bright orangish red. Eventually, our hero, Captain Kirk, realized that the entity was capable of implanting false memories in order to trigger aggression. So, he convinces those who had been goaded to fight amongst themselves to put down their weapons and start laughing. This starved the entity of the violence it craved, and it soon de-energized and left the ship, passing through the walls and disappearing into space. Does any of that sound familiar? An entity that triggers negative emotions that stir up conflict. An entity that implants false notions in order to trigger aggression. An entity that feeds off and revels in the violence that breaks out, that becomes more and more hmm, orange as it puffs itself up an entity that can't stand it when people are cheerful and particularly hates being laughed at? This story is a little side note, but it certainly strikes a chord. Hopefully, this will be the cycle when the entity that has been causing so much havoc on this planet finally shrivels up and slinks away or is put away. Initiatives such as the Renew America Movement and the Republican Accountability Project, noted in the Horoscope blog, are dedicated to making that happen. Information being brought forward by the January 6th Commission hearings going on in Washington right now is also providing considerable evidence to help this along. And depositions are now beginning, finally, in at least 10 civil lawsuits against him, ranging from alleged fraud to defamation to the incitement of violence. 
It does seem like something has shifted with the start of this new cycle. During this new cycle, which will take us to July 3rd, early next summer, we are sure to see some major developments in that regard. There will also be a strong emphasis on environmental action to curb climate change. The big climate change conference in Glasgow will be coming up during the next Tristina. So right now, there is a big push going on to get as many world leaders to attend as possible. There is ample evidence of the need to tackle climate change as aggressively as possible. So that will be a major theme during this new cycle. Activism is already clicking in as the first in a series of simultaneous global concerts being held in over 40 countries under the blanket title of Climate Live 2021 was held last Saturday, that first day of this cycle, to put pressure on world leaders to take concrete action at the Glasgow Conference to combat the climate crisis. As could be expected, 18-year-old Greta Thunberg was at the center of the launch of this climate action event. And again, we can see an energy echo through the lens of this calendar, as it was one Imish, two cycles ago precisely, when she arrived in New York after spending 14 days sailing across the Atlantic aboard a solar-powered yacht in order to attend climate summits. Near the Statue of Liberty, she was met by a flotilla of 17 sailing boats, each with one of the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals written on their sails. She then went on to lead climate change rallies in cities across North America. Then, on another front, yesterday, which was too eek, a balancing but generative type of energy associated with wind, breath, and spirit, and communication, an elaborate gala was held for the winners of Prince William's Earthshot Prize, an environmental award established to find solutions through new technologies or policies to the planet's biggest environmental problems. Each winner in each of the five categories received one million pounds, about $1.37 million. Milan won the Build a Waste-Free World Award for its food waste hubs, which recover food to give to those most in need. Costa Rica received the Protect and Restore Nature Prize for programs that pay citizens to plant trees and restore ecosystems.
As Prince William said, quote, we are alive in the most consequential time in human history. The actions we choose or choose not to take in the next 10 years will determine the fate of the planet for the next thousand, unquote. Even Queen Elizabeth said she was irritated by world leaders who talk about climate change but do nothing to address global warming in a concrete fashion. Okay, looking at a few more specifics. We can see the Maya energy of Seven Manique coming up on October 22nd. This is the midpoint in what can be seen as a world-making type of time framing, as the generative aspects of this period can so often shape new directions. Often, this is a good energy for generating sustenance, particularly with regard to humanitarian activities or for working through negotiations or joint ventures. But there can be a sacrificial aspect to Seven Manique as well. And this is what happened seven cycles ago in October of 2016 when FBI Director James Comey sent a letter to Congress just before the presidential election indicating that he was reopening the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails, a move that was likely in violation of the Hatch Act, which prohibits interference with an election. Side note here is that we found out later there was pressure being placed on Comey by Republicans before he sent that letter. Nevertheless, nine days after that, he reported that there was nothing new or incriminating about the information associated with Hillary. But in the meantime, this October surprise prompted the dumpster to claim that she would be indicted, urging his followers to lock her up. At the time, many saw Comey's action as a mistake of historic proportions, a mistake that robbed Hillary of the opportunity of becoming the first woman president of the United States. Indeed, in 2018, the Justice Department's Inspector General corroborated this in a sweeping report that revealed that Comey's mishandling of that investigation had done a grave disservice to Hillary Clinton. Certainly, it had catastrophic consequences for the U.S. and the world. Again, 
If we look at this from a wider perspective, we can see how a decision made by one person on one specific day can change the world. And Comey made that call about reopening that investigation right in the middle of this world-making Tristina. And that call became one of the most important generative forces that churned into the nightmare world that came into being after that. Five cycles after, again on Seven Manique, we can see an echo of that kind of political interference again when the dumpster threatened to hold up federal funding to Michigan, which at that time was dealing with catastrophic flooding as well as high COVID death tolls. He threatened to hold up that funding unless they held up the process of mail-in voting for the 2020 election. The day after Seven Manique is Eight Lamat, which is one of those signaling or heralding forces aligned with leadership. This particular Lamat Day was celebrated traditionally as a Maya festival of abundance. In many variations of this calendar, this energy was depicted as rabbit and was seen as a symbol of abundance and proliferation. Again, this is a calendar that was in widespread use prior to the arrival of Columbus and his cohorts. And regardless of the language group that was using it, they were all following the same basic energies. But there was some variation in the symbols used for the days and some variation in general interpretations. For the Maya, this energy was closely aligned with Venus and depicted in hieroglyphic form as a star, where other groups showed it as a rabbit. When this was in place last January, the U.S. Senate passed a budget resolution that allowed for the passage of President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package without Republican support, even though some of them tried to take credit for it later on. Vice President Kamala Harris broke a 50-50 tie by casting a vote in favor of the bill, which led to its final approval. Given the obstructionism going on these days by Republicans, it looks like that may have to happen again to get other important bills passed. We shall see. Jumping ahead a couple of days, we come to Ten Oak, which is one of those burner days that I've mentioned before. 
This is one of those dog days that can translate as foundational fire or even heart fire, often associated with love, protection, guidance, and justice. In this case, the 10 part is the foundational element as it connects with this guidance-related energy. Traditionally, this would have been seen as an energy that takes the fire, as in the sense of setting something up for action. This energy can also provide a kind of course correction if some significant adjustments are needed to a course of action. This is the first day of the five-day, 72nd International Astronautical Congress being held this year in Dubai. This is perfect timing for the world's largest space conference during this cosmos world-making time frame. The theme for the conference is Inspire, Innovate, and Discover for the Benefit of Humankind. And its stated goal is to make a contribution to humanity and to science by strengthening and enhancing cooperation between all countries in the space sector. Let's hope they're serious about that so we can hear more about those benefits above and beyond the benefits of space tourism for billionaires. The following day is 11 Xuan on October 26th. This is a change-oriented, time-weaver type of energy, generally depicted as a highly dexterous monkey. It's the energy that brought forth the first untethered spacewalk in 1984. It's also the Maya birth energy of Stanley Kubrick, the filmmaker whose 2001 A Space Odyssey has been seen as one of the world's most influential motion pictures. As anyone who has seen it knows, it was a strange, very futuristic kind of film presenting a kind of puzzle in the form of a strange black obelisk floating out there in space. Also puzzling was the image at the end of the film of a kind of star child, like a yet unborn baby, floating in a halo of light out there in space. There's been all sorts of speculation about what that was supposed to mean, both the obelisk and the baby. And since we're back here again in this birth-oriented time frame, going through this same energy field, so to speak, it might be something to contemplate again. And as my husband just told me, it so happens that that movie was on TV again today. 
The other night on Wanimish, the same night when I saw that Star Trek episode, I caught the tail end of another movie that seemed to have been highly influenced by Kubrick's 2001 film. It was called Arrival, and it seemed to be about a linguist who was trying to communicate with extraterrestrials who had landed black obelisk-type ships at 12 different locations on Earth. It was considered one of the best films of 2016. Again, the timing was interesting as Arrival appeared on the first day of this cosmos birth-oriented new Trisina at the start of this new cycle. Eleven Schwen is an energy that can prompt us to have fun, but also can remind us to be on our toes. The final two days of the Trisina, 12 Ebb and 13 Ben, are often quite intense. Certainly, many strongly transformative events have taken place on 13 Ben, which translates as transformational personal authority, including, as noted in the horoscope post, the death of Queen Elizabeth I in 1603, the inception of the Russian Revolution of 1917, the launch of Sputnik 1 by the USSR, signaling the beginning of the Space Age in 1957, the toppling of the monarchy in Iran in 1979, and the election of Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives in 2006. Last January, this was the energy on Earth at the time when China's Tianwen-1 spacecraft entered orbit around Mars. Over the past few cycles, this energy has been particularly fiery. We saw high drama and chaos in the UK Parliament under this influence in 2019, during a time of national crisis just before Parliament was prorogued for five weeks. At the same time as the House Judiciary Committee laid out its procedures for their first impeachment investigation of Trump in the U.S., Two cycles later, early this year, this energy was in place at the start of his second Senate impeachment for incitement of insurrection. With all the lawsuits and hearings lining up at this time revolving around his alleged crimes, no doubt there will be a number of major developments happening again in this regard around this time. I should also mention that in 2019, 
This was the energy in place when a new climate change report was released that had concluded that a trillion dollar investment is needed in order to avert climate apartheid. Two cycles later, we don't need a report to tell us that. We've seen what's happening with regard to climate change. By 13 Ben, this time, the Glasgow Climate Change Conference will be right around the corner. As we can see, both in the podcast and the horoscope blog, I often make reference to people who were born within whatever time frame we're working with. Because these energies do play an important role in people's lives, whether they're aware of them or not. These energies influence how people see the world, how they make their way through life, how they make decisions, how and why they follow different paths, and how they interact with others. Unfortunately, time constraints only enable me to provide brief glimpses of these influences, but for every individual there are always many forces in play. So, on a personal note, for anyone who might want me to help them explore this kind of thing as it applies to your own lives, feel free to contact me through either of my websites, whitepoppress.ca or mayacalendararts.com. A personal exploration can be done on either a small scale or large scale, depending on your interests. And of course, a listing of all the days within this Tristina can be found in my Maya account of Days Horoscope blog. Given the fact that we live in a world where even healthcare workers are often under attack these days, I'm going to finish off with a short note about someone born near the end of this Tristina on 12 Ebb, the second to the last day. Ebb is a revitalization type of energy, often associated with healing. And the force of 12 tends to be an energy that collects or pulls things together. So we can think of this as a pulling together for healing or revitalization type of influence. This was the birth energy of Edith Cavell, born on 12 Ebb in 1865, a British nurse who began as a private nurse treating patients in their homes. But at age 42, she became the matron of a nursing school in Belgium. When the First World War broke out, her clinic and nursing school were taken over by the Red Cross, and then she became the matron of a new secular hospital, where she greatly improved the standard of nursing. After the German occupation of Belgium, she became involved in an underground group that was formed to help British, French, and Belgian soldiers reach the Netherlands, which was neutral at that time. The soldiers were sheltered at her hospital, and she helped 
to provide them with money and guides so they could reach the Dutch frontier. But by doing so, she was in violation of German law. After helping about 200 men, she and several others were arrested in 1915 on the charge of war treason. And after she confessed, she and several others were executed by German soldiers. But that was not the end of her story, as countless newspaper articles, pamphlets, posters, and books about her turned her into an iconic propaganda figure for military recruitment in Britain and to help increase favorable opinions of Britain's allies. She became a popular icon, not only because she was a courageous and competent woman, but because of her apparently heroic approach to death, at which time she had apparently said, I realize that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness towards anyone. Her final words were that she was glad to die for her country. Because of the British government's decision to publicize her story as part of its propaganda effort, she became the most prominent British female casualty of the First World War. Since then, there have been many memorials and monuments erected in her honor around the world. Schools and other institutions have been named after her. Films and other dramatizations have been made about her, and musical compositions have been created in her name. One of her most famous quotes is, I can't stop while there are lives to be saved. That is something that can be said of the thousands of health care workers who are out there right now fighting against COVID. They are brave, honorable, greatly needed, and they need to be protected. As we move forward through this world-making first Tresina of this new cycle, let's do everything we can to help make this a world where they are given the recognition and help that they deserve. Until next time, keep safe. Love to all.